Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, open them up to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We are back in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It's interesting, we had like all the technical stuff worked great until the service started, and right as it started, a computer crashed. And it reminded me of um, this, this friend of mine that was talking about when he went to go preach, and he was, his topic is preaching on Satan. And he's like, he, just as he starts to preach, all the stuff goes wrong. There's this loud horn that goes off somewhere. I mean, just all this stuff going on. And when he was all done, he's like, man, it was a crazy horn. Where'd that thing come from? And people are like, we don't know. There's no horn on this island. We don't know where it came from. So sometimes Satan doesn't want people to hear what's being taught. I don't know, I don't know about the details of all that stuff. I wasn't there, but it reminded me of that this morning. Uh, we're going to be talking today about total commitment being totally committed to God in our life. And uh, basically, the, the phrase, the other side of this, the very first phrase in our passage is flee idolatry. And idolatry is the false wor worship of God. It is actually the worship of Satan. And so the Bible says that as believers, we need to flee that and we need to pursue Christ. I was thinking about uh, that's Satan's priority. Did you know that? that people would not worship God, and that instead that they would worship Him. In Isaiah chapter 14, verse 13 and 14, it's, uh, the, the, the prophet is speaking, Isaiah is speaking, and he, he talks about Satan and his fall and actually why Satan was thrown out of heaven. And he just says in verse 13, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. And the stars of God is a reference to angels in that passage. And so Satan is saying, I want to be above the angels. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. That is Satan's purpose and goal is that we worship him. And one of the ways that Satan puts the, the worship of himself. I mean, there are people who intentionally and purposefully worship Satan, but every false religion, every idol is Satan's attempt to get people to worship him. So wherever we look and wherever we see idols, wherever we see false religions, one of the things we know is that false religions are not a place where people find God. You know, there's a lot of people, as they view religion, they just say, you know, God's in every religion. And, and they'll think about various religions, and they'll go, oh, look how this is so similar to this. And, and look how this false religion talks about God in this way. And, and people have this idea that possibly a person could find God in a false religion instead of understanding that Satan is the author of all false religions, and none of them have as their purpose to allow people to see God as he is. And the Bible tells us that we need to understand that, that we need to see it, and that we need to flee idolatry. You know, when uh, God saves us, we come to him, not because we're cleaning ourselves up. Like, that's the message of the gospel, is that you can't clean yourself up. You can't be good enough. We come to Christ, we come to God, because Jesus accomplished the work that we needed to be accomplished, he accomplished that on the cross. But when we come to Jesus, we come recognizing who he is and worshiping him alone. You know, one of the things that uh, we find out 
is that God doesn't share. <laughs> you, know, you think about it, you get your kids. Everybody needs to share. But one of the things we need to know, God does not share. He is the pinnacle of the universe. He will be worshipped above all else. And for believers who come to know Jesus, we don't come because we're good enough, but when we do, we come and we worship. I was, I was reading in Acts this week, I was reading some passages, and it was interesting when you hear, hear the way that people attacked Paul. One of the ways that they attacked him is they would say he's preaching about a king, another king, Jesus. And so they would say that to whoever the ruler was. They would accuse Paul by saying he's preaching another king. That tells us something about Paul's preaching. He preached Jesus as the Savior, but he preached Jesus as the king. And it goes on later, and it talks about how he preached um, Jesus' death and resurrection. Those are things that Paul was preaching as he presented Christ. Well, as we look here at Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 14, if you're a Christian, if you've been in the church, if you have been in Sunday school, if you've heard Old Testament stories, you know that idol worship is not a good thing. Uh, let's read this in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 14. And this is what it says, You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you, for the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of, your, of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. And then we read all these stories about Israel and how they would fall to that. Now, I don't know about you, but as I read the Old Testament, it, I have really struggled sometimes to understand the allure of idol worship. And, uh, you know, I would just think to myself, you know, I've been in Thai food restaurants and they have a little Buddha with some food up there. I have never walked in and been tempted to bow down and pray to that thing. Or, you know, when I was in India and I saw all these temples and all these different things, like there was nothing in me that was attracting me to go worship and go place a gift in front of some idol. And so often we'll look at the nation of Israel, and, and it's interesting as you read the Old Testament, so many of the struggles we can just go, yeah, that's a struggle we have. Yeah, that's a struggle we have. Yeah, that's a struggle we have. You know, so many of the things, of the things that everybody thinks are unique to our day. You know, you think about some of the sexual sins and some of the gender struggles and, and just all the various things going on. And then you just open up the Bible and you read it, and way back in the Old Testament, all the same stuff was going on. Like, we think all this stuff is new. None of it's new. But it's interesting because sometimes we can read about idol worship and we can think, oh, that's not really about us. That's about them because we don't have that in our culture. And uh, it's, that's actually not the case. Um, as we go through this morning and consider idolatry, we'll discover that that is a very serious thing that we should pay attention to. But it's actually something that is always on the surface, that all of us struggle with to one degree or another, something we need to be careful about. So the Old Testament talks about how God doesn't share. And did you know that same message is communicated in the New Testament? You think about Jesus when he, people were following him. Um, he said, I'm first. I'm number one. That's what it says in Luke chapter 14, verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him. You know, it's interesting. The bigger the crowds were that were following Jesus, the harder his message was. 
Like he didn't think, oh man, I got all these people. How do I keep them? He, he would get these huge crowds and then he would say things that would make them all leave. Uh, let's read this. Now great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. <laughs> Jesus isn't saying, oh, please, what can I change to get you to follow me? That's not what he says. He says, you come, you fall down on your face. I am more important than anybody in your family and even your own life. And if I'm not number one, you cannot be my disciple. I mean, think about that. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. We die to ourselves and we worship Christ. Now, when you think about idol worship, that's actually one of the big things. We think of idol worship as bowing down to some image and giving gifts to some image. But dying to yourself, the idolatry in our country, our, the idolatry in the West is not a little piece of metal in the shape of a person for the most part, though that is true here. It is that we place ourselves on the throne of the universe. You know the whole self-esteem message, you're a wonderful person, uh, you can do anything you want to do, you deserve this, buy this for yourself. Um, you don't deserve that, you deserve this. Like the whole self-esteem message, a big part of what's wrong with that is that it places you on the throne. And that's idolatry. And so when Jesus says, you want to follow me, you can't be an idol worshiper, which means I come first. So the reality is um, that it is a struggle for us today. Um, you know, a person can be an idol for you. You're willing to do anything to get someone. Uh, you just have to have them in your life. Um, uh, security. Uh, I will do anything to feel secure. People steal, people rob, people look at their retirement accounts, and that's what makes them feel okay about today is I have money. Money can be an idol. When any, anything that we love or value or anything that we trust, I'm going to be okay because I am a powerful, strong, talented person, so I trust myself. I will protect myself against things instead of viewing God as the greatest treasure and as your greatest source of help and that apart from God we can do nothing hey that's that was the Proverbs uh, 127 right about uh, the, the passage on kids where it just says unless the Lord builds the house they labor in vain who build it unless the Lord guards the city the watchman stays awake in vain you know it, it actually when, when you think about idolatry and what it means to worship God first you just open the Bible and kind of you read anywhere and that's what it's teaching right like this doesn't come out of a verse it comes out of the whole Bible so um that's where we're going this morning. Let me just remind you, it's been four months since we've been in 1 Corinthians, so let me just give you a quick uh, summary of that. The, the Corinthian church was a wonderful story about God's salvation. I love the book of 1 and 2 Corinthians. It's so encouraging and helpful. Uh, this is a wicked city with all kinds of idol worship, all kinds of sin and brokenness, and all the sins, the big sins that we see in our culture, they had it in their city. 
And Paul went and he preached and people got saved. And he was there ministering to them for a year and a half. And this church was there. And often people look at First and Second Corinthians and they think, man, Paul must have really not liked the Corinthian church. They were such a thorn in his side. All they did was complain. And he writes 1 Corinthians. He defends himself a little bit. And then when he has to write 2 Corinthians, the last three chapters of 2 Corinthians is Paul defending himself against their attacks. It's like as they were fighting with each other, and Paul said, hey, you got to quit fighting. What did they all do? Oh, yeah, you're going to tell us to stop fighting, and then who did they start attacking? Paul. So uh, a lot of people say, oh, this church was a thorn in Paul's side. I don't actually think that that's the case. I think Paul loved them. I think he was thankful for them. He was committed to them. And yes, they were struggling. But it was a group of people that he loved and was so encouraged by the amazing things that God had done in their life. You know, uh, Paulos, <laughs> in the beginning of, of uh, Corinthians, it just says that uh, some people were saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. You know, they were bragging about Apollos, and Paul has to write to them and say, quit doing that. Yeah. But did you know that this church, I'm sure there was a group of people that loved him and probably people who hated him. And so Paul goes to Apollos, and he says, hey, the Corinthian church needs you. Go back. And Apollos is like, I ain't going I am not going back. And Paul actually writes to them and he says, I tried to get Apollos to come, but he was in no way willing to go. So Paul, Apollos was like, I was there, I ministered to them, I encouraged them, I am not going back. And then Paul sends Timothy and he says that he was worried about Timothy. He's like, I'm sending Timothy. Apollos won't go, but Timothy is going. And don't make him be afraid. He has to tell them, don't abuse Timothy. He's coming to you. He's probably thinking to himself, if they abuse Timothy and he won't go, then I'm the only one that's going to be left. So Paul's writing to this church with all these struggles and challenges. And, uh, but he loves this church. And he writes for three reasons. One is he's clarifying some things. You may not realize this, but 1 Corinthians is lost. Uh, we don't have the first letter that Paul wrote to them. Our first Corinthians is actually Paul's second Corinthians. So he's writing them to clarify some things that they were confused about. Um, the, the second thing was because of all these divisions and conflicts. He heard about it and just said, you guys need to love each other and get along. And this is how God says you should think about each other. And then the third thing was to answer questions that they asked. And so they asked these various questions. And actually, um, this passage, all along the way, Paul is answering questions, he's clarifying things, and then every once in a while, he just stops and he teaches them some things. And so this is one of those teaching sessions between his answering of questions. And so I want to read for us 1 Corinthians 10. We're going to start in verse 6 so that you kind of remember what we taught on last time we were in this book. 1 Corinthians 10, 6 through 24. Now these things took place as, an exa as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did and do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. 
We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. That's an angel that, that went and wiped some people out. Nor these things happened to, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Okay. If you think you can handle it, <laughs> you can't. So if you say to yourself, oh, other people might struggle with idolatry, but not me, <laughs> don't say that. The four deadliest words anybody can say is, I can handle it. Hey, this is a bad crowd. You shouldn't be hanging out with them. I'm strong enough, mom and dad. I can handle it. <laughs> bad idea. Hey, this is a dangerous situation. You shouldn't go there. I'll be fine. The four deadliest words a person says is, I can handle it. And that's what it says right here. Paul just says, take heed when you stand, lest you fall. And then he delivers this most amazing promise. He says this in verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Hey, everything we face, we all face. None of us are unique. So God's blessing us in that way, that we're not facing things other people don't face. And then it says, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. God supernaturally limits every temptation you face. Have you ever thought to yourself, I cannot stop myself from doing this sin? I mean, sometimes we feel that way. That is not true. God will never let you be tempted beyond what you are able, but always provides a way out. And so sometimes it doesn't feel like that. Have you ever met somebody and looked at another person and just said, no, this, this temptation, it's too powerful. They cannot resist it. They cannot change. This is something about them. They, they, they desire this evil, ungodly thing, and they're slaves to it, and it cannot be helped. That is not true. Not only do you never face a temptation that you can't handle, neither does anyone else. There is always hope in Christ, and God will always provide a way of escape so that you may endure it. Okay, that was the last sermon. This week, verse 14, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ. So he's talking now about communion, which we will celebrate today. The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we 
provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So it starts by saying, flee immorality, and it ends by saying, immorality provokes God. And when you think about who God is and how powerful God is, do not do anything that provokes God. Are you stronger than he? You ever met somebody who thinks that they're stronger than God, disregards God, thinks he doesn't matter? Well, as believers, we should know that's not true. All right, let's Let's uh, dive into this. The first thing is that God requires total commitment in our worship. And your worship is your life. It is your devotion. Yes, it is singing. But it is the way you live your life. Worship is serving God, which needs to incorporate everything that you are. And so uh, we... He says here, therefore, my beloved. So therefore is in light of all these stories that he's just told about Israel, sexually immoral, worshiping idols, receiving incredible judgment. And then he says, okay, so God's going to protect you, won't let you be tempted, but don't do that. So he's, he's going to say, therefore, flee from idolatry. And it's interesting, Paul loves these people. He says, therefore, beloved, he, he, his hardest words are for the Corinthian church, but it's because he loves them. And he tells them, flee. This is something you need to look at, that you need to run away from. Don't think you're okay in this area of your life. It's a weakness. And so the apostle Paul is telling them to flee. And uh, he tells them to flee because idolatry makes God mad. Uh, have you guys ever read in the Bible about the flood? And how everybody rebelled against God. And so he drowned the entire world. Um, you ever read about Sodom and Gomorrah? How Sodom and Gomorrah um, was rebelling against God and, and their sin had gone on and God gave them a chance to repent. And when they didn't repent, he went and got Lot. And he says, Lot and his family and his wife, he says, get out of the city. And then he burns the entire city. And, and by the way, he tells Lot and his family run from the city. And he says, don't look back. Guess what Lot's wife did? She looked back. And what happened to her? She turned into a pillar of salt, so she also died. Like, when you read all this stuff in the Old Testament, what's one of the things that we all are committed to in our life? I do not want to make God mad. Now, here's the deal. God's not this terrible, angry person, always mad at you, looking for, to, to, for you to be in trouble. God loves you. He's made a way for you to be forgiven. No matter how much you sin, God is there to forgive you and to be merciful. Isaiah 43, 25, one of my favorite verses where God says, I, even I, am he who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake and will remember your sins no more. God is a loving God. He loves us. He forgives us. That's repentance. That's the way that we live. Our standing before God is based on the work of Christ. But can I tell you how many times I've heard people say things like, God always forgives. I know this is a sin. I'm going to do it anyway, and I'll ask God to forgive me later. <laughs> you ever hear anybody say something like that? Uh, that should terrify you. Um, people who harden their hearts. You know, the Bible says that, that a man who hardens his heart after much rebuke will suddenly be broken without remedy. So God gives us an offer 
Um, we don't have to be afraid. We don't serve this angry God. But to live your life in rebellion against God, to flip your nose at God, to say, I don't care what you say. I'm going to do what I want. God, you will not be on the throne of my life. I will be on the throne of my life. That is not a good place to be. It says this in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 15. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. So God is just saying, when I showed you myself, I didn't show you a form. I didn't show you some kind of an image. You know, I spoke to you out of the fire, but God does not represent himself with images. It is a sinful thing to create an image of some other God or to create an image that represents God. In fact, the worship of the golden calf, um, there's this, like people are saying, okay, well, wait a second, were they worshiping the calf or did they make this image to represent God? Either way, if they worship God by making an image or if they worship a different God, both are terrible sins. As believers, we don't have images. In the Old Testament, they did not have images because God says, when I showed you myself, I didn't show you myself through an image. So images are sinful. Verse 16, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourself in the form of any figure in the likeness of a male or a female. We don't make male images, we don't make female images, and we don't worship them. <laughs> right now you guys are going, okay, we're there. You're preaching to the choir. I'm going to show you some things that a lot of Christians worship. People who are labeled Christians worship. Um, verse uh, 17, in the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, in the likeness of any winged bird that flies in, flies in the air. Verse 18, in the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, in the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the hosts of the heaven, you be drawn away to bow down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all peoples under the whole earth." So God made all these things. He says, you don't make images of them and worship them. So you don't do that. Okay, the stars and the heaven. Um, how many of you know your sign? Okay, wait, uh, I'm going to stop. Um, so these are some of the images that uh, th this is a Roman household god. This is an image that may have been in, in the house of somebody during this period of time. This is from the second century. Um, how about today? There are people that worship cows. This is an annual Hindu festival. Uh, and people worship cows and calves. There's a picture of a lady praying to a cow. You go to India today, you see that. Um, or this. This is another Hindu uh, thing where there's a tree. This is supposedly a tree of healing. And so they, they reach out and, and they're, they're touching this tree uh, and thinking that it will heal them that they'll get some advantage from it. You know, um, one of the things that God tells us is that idolatry is worthless. Nobody who touches this tree is going to get healed. Nobody who prays to a cow will have that prayer answered. 
idolatrous, idolatry is worthless. Isaiah 44, 9 says, all who fashion idols are nothing. The things that they delight in do not profit. Their witness neither sees nor knows that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god and casts an, casts an idol is, is profitable for nothing. How about this? Where when God talks about idol worship, he says there are two evils that are committed with idol worship. This is Jeremiah chapter 2. He says, has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? These things are nothing. But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. And God is just saying, you are my people. I have cared for you. I've done these miraculous things. Do you remember when I took you out of Egypt? And you have traded me, the all-powerful God of the universe, for something that can do nothing. And then he says this, verse 12, and this is something that should be true of every one of us when we see idol worship. He just says this, be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me. When we worship, when we rely on, when we trust anyone other than God, that God takes that personally. It is forsaking him. And so that's the first evil is to forsake this living God, this fountain of living waters. And then it's replacing God. This is the second evil. And hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. We have the God of the universe that holds life in his hands. And idol worship is when we fail to worship him and we choose something else that will never help us. You know, it's interesting to me um, how Israel would take religious things that were actually great things that might cause you to remember things, and they would worship those things. Do you remember um, one of the things when, uh, in that passage I read where the snakes went out and they were biting Israel, and they were killed, these poisonous snakes went out? One of the things that God did is he, he told Moses, make this staff, put a golden snake on it, and then hold it up. And whoever looks at that snake... If they've been bitten and they look at the statue, the snake, they will not die. And um, so God healed them. <laughs> you want to know what Israel did? Like, they saved that. I mean, that's kind of a cool thing. I would save that. I would love to have that. I, I wish I could show it to you and go, hey, check it out. This is the thing right here that Moses made. That'd be awesome. But, you know, one of the kings in Israel um, took that snake that they had saved and he cut it up and destroyed it. You know Why? Israel started worshiping it. Um, do you remember um, in, in, first, in uh, first Samuel, when, when Eli is the priest and his sons go out, they, and Israel goes to fight uh, the Philistines, and the Philistines defeat them. And they're thinking to themselves, and, and the Philistines defeat them because they're sinful and because they've rejected God. They're not pleasing the Lord. The priests are mistreating the offerings. The priests are abusing people in the, in, the, in the congregation. And so God's not blessing them. He's not honoring them, and they're losing the battle. You want to know what they do? They go, let's get the ark. 
let's go get the Ark of the Covenant and let's send that thing out there. It will save us. So they get it. Israel is cheering. They're shouting because this Ark is coming. And the Philistines hear them. And all of a sudden they get scared. Oh, no, it's the Ark. And, and that, that Ark is, they marched around Jericho. The walls fell down. Uh, this is the one who destroyed Egypt. Oh, no. And the Philistines uh, leaders get them together and they just say, hey, don't be afraid of that thing. Toughen up. Go fight them. So the Philistines toughen up and go fight them. And guess what they do? They defeat the Israelites and they take the ark and they stick it in the, their temple back home. And they're saying, our God's better than that God. So did that idolatrous worship of the ark Israel? No, it made them mad. It made God mad and said, you're going to be defeated. And then while the ark's there, uh, the Philistines think that represents the God of Israel. So when they get up, everybody's sick. Everybody's got tumors. There's all kinds of things going wrong. They're at, their statue falls down. Its wrists break off. Its head breaks off. And finally, the Philistines are like, we've got to get this ark out of here because God's destroying them with the ark. Now, the superstition didn't help Israel, but God still showed the Philistines, I'm God, not your gods. Isn't it amazing the temptation that we can have to take things that are good and start worshiping them. Like if you put the Bible under your pillow and think, oh, I won't have a headache, I'll sleep better. Or um, if you bring a cross with you and you just think, oh man, as long as I have this cross, I'll be okay. Um, I saw another piece of idolatrous worship um, that, that happened last year. So uh, this is a news release from Vatican City, and this, this is the Pope um, last year, and uh, he was uh, praying for Ukraine and Russia, and this is what he actually says. Mother of God, our mother, to your immaculate heart, we solemnly entrust and, and consecrate ourselves and the church and all humanity, especially Russia and Ukraine. That's the Pope praying to a statue of Mary. Now, Mary was a, a righteous woman, somebody that we would be so thankful for. I mean, man, what a faithful person. But to take Mary and to turn her into a statue and then to bow down and pray, first of all, Mary hears no prayers. Nobody who ever prays actually does Mary hear anything. Uh, Mary is a person, a human being, who was faithful, but who died and is in heaven. But she hears no prayers. She answers no prayers. She does nothing. If Mary was there, she would run into that room, knock down that statue, and break it apart. And she would say, no, don't ever worship me. And one of the things that we need to recognize is that it's not just the worship of Mary. But within Catholicism, they worship Mary, they worship saints, they say Hail Marys for forgiveness. Uh, so there's all that. There's the doctrine. Um, one of the statements that the Catholic Church made, I looked it up when I moved here, but the statement was, anybody who says that works are a result of salvation and not the cause of salvation, let him be accursed. No, no. A person who believes that works are the result of salvation and not the cause of salvation can be saved. Anybody who believes that your works achieve salvation cannot be saved. 
And one of the sad things is we look at idolatrous religions, we look at idolatry, and we feel like people can find God in these satanic religions that are designed to point people away from Christ. And when the head of a religion bows down and prays to an idol of Mary, this is not confusing that this is something that God would hate, that this is something that God would say, stay away from that, flee it, avoid it. And for us, I was thinking about the Apostle Paul. In Acts chapter 17, he's going throughout this idolatrous city. And as he goes throughout this idolatrous city, he sees all these idols. And it says that he was provoked in his spirit. You want to know what he did when he was provoked in his spirit? He went and had a conversation with them and shared the gospel with them. How tragic if we look at an Eastern religion and say, oh, but they're worshiping God, and we have no compassion, we're not provoked in our spirit, we have no desire to share the gospel and see them come to know Christ. How tragic and brokenhearted it is if we have a family member, and Michelle grew up Catholic, my wife, she grew up Catholic. How tragic when we look at somebody who's grown up in a church where they see works of salvation, where when they go to take the mass, that removes their sin. When, they, when they're baptized as a baby, that removes original sin. When they've sinned and they need to be forgiven, they say our fathers and Hail Marys so that they can be forgiven. And they pray to Mary. How heartbreaking and tragic it is when we look at the people that God has put in our life who need salvation, who need to understand who God is, and we just go, oh, no, they're, they're good. It's kind of like I remember in the 70s when there was like the big thing about rock music and everybody would say it's evil, it's got satanic beats, and kids would grab their rock music and they would, they would take it home and they would say, no, this, this guy's a Christian. <laughs> Why? He said God. You know, and it's like, and we would try to say, oh, no, he's a Christian, this is a Christian song, because that has the word God in it. No. Um, the Bible tells us that we are to flee idolatry. So, all right, none of us would say Hail Marys. None of us would say our fathers for the forgiveness of our sins. None of us think that our works make us right before God. None of us would pray to Mary. None of us would join the Pope, go get in line and bow down to a statue of Mary. None of us would do any of those things. We don't go to Thai food restaurants and bow down to, you know, a, a Buddha in there. Like, none of us do that. So how does idolatry touch us? And I think that the biggest way idolatry touches us is that we have a life where we sit on the throne. We don't ask God, what do you say I should do and what should I do? I'll do that. Uh, Lord, whatever your word says, I'll do that. Uh, we're people who say, well, if God tells me to do this, I would never do it. But as long as he says this, I will do it. We're people who we live our life based on our own, our own happiness. We run ourselves. 
Uh, that gets expressed in legalistic attitudes, impure thoughts, jealousy, guilt, worry, discouragement, critical spirit, frustration, aimlessness, fear, ignorance of spiritual heritage, unbelief, disobedience, loss of love for God and others, a poor prayer life, a no desire for Bible study. Like those are all things that kind of express themselves. I thought about this. I was talking to the a youth group years and years ago, and I was just saying believers have a hunger for God's Word. And then, then I went home, and I thought, I didn't really do my personal devotions today, but my favorite TV show's on. <laughs> so I watched that instead. And then I'm thinking to myself, how does this fit with, with what I just said to all the kids in youth group? Um, by the way, that's not some legalistic thing. Um, I ne- when I miss reading the Bible, I never feel guilty. Um, I read the Bible as much as I can because I love it. And, and that's like the whole legalistic attitude type thing. But really, what is, what, do you, what is your affection? What are your desires? Do you love the things of God or are you selfish? You know, a Christ-directed life, man, that has the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Your life is Christ-centered, empowered by the Holy Spirit. You want to introduce others to Christ. You have an effective prayer life. You understand God's Word. You trust God. You obey God. You know, trusting God is, I think, one of those huge things. Have you ever faced something in your life where you think to yourself, God says I should do this, but if I do that, it will ruin my life. You know, tax time's coming up, right? Um, God says I'm not supposed to lie and cheat, but if I tell the truth on my taxes, it's going to cost me some money. It would, I would be better off if I cheat or if I lie. See, trusting God says it doesn't matter how this looks. I know that you're good. I know that everything that you say is best. And so I'm going to do what's right in every situation, no matter what, because I trust you and I know that you're good. Um, Colossians defines idolatry. Um, and Colossians just says in verse 1, we'll start in verse 4 together, but if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds that are on things that are above, not on things on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Verse 4, when Christ who is your life appears. That's saying we love Jesus more. He is our life then you will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness or greed. I want more. I need this. Which is idolatry? On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. You know, setting our mind on things above, choosing not to feed our flesh, my desires are the most important thing. What I want is the most important thing. No, what God wants is most important. So let's look at a couple things and we'll close here. Because of, look at verse 16, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. When Jesus died, he instituted the Lord's Supper where we celebrate Jesus 
And when we come together and we take the Lord's Supper, it's not that the juice takes away our sin. It's not that the bread takes away our sin. It's that it reminds us of what Jesus did, which took away our sin. And when we come, and that is who we are, we are participating in the spiritual reality that Jesus died for us. That's what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper. You can't celebrate the Lord's Supper and worship God and then turn around and worship demons and say, God, you made me and you died for me and I worship you and I follow you. But when I'm trying to figure out who to be friends with or who I should marry or who I should date, I'm going to trust the stars and the power that they have over people's personalities. So we have a sign that gets along. We have a sign that doesn't get along. That is idol worship. It is incompatible with the worship of God. Um, bowing down and praying to Mary, incompatible with the worship of Jesus, with the worship of God. Not possible that those things can go together. God would hate that. That would make him angry. Upset Mary too, but she doesn't even know it's happening. So it's, it's, it doesn't match with worship, with true worship. Um, the second thing in verse 18, consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar. You know, this whole thing of unified worship is not just for the New Testament. It was in the Old Testament too. There's never a time when God has said, I'll share, worship many gods if you want. God has always said, only worship me. And then this is a significant thing is that the worship of idols, praying to Mary is worshiping demons. Um, praying to saints is worshiping demons. If you carry a saint around with you and you think that's going to protect you, that is worshiping a demon. Uh, bowing down to idols. When we, when we see people praying to cows, they're worshiping demons. When a person bows down to pray to, Ju to Buddha, they are worshiping demons. When people go to a palm reader, they are worshiping demons. When somebody goes and, and they do a seance and somebody from the dead comes back to tell you things, like your, your de great dead grandmother tells you the combination to the safe, that is hearing directly from Satan. When, when the police get some kind of a medium and they touch something and then it helps them find the, the criminal, like it's not that those things aren't real. Uh, a demon was sitting there influencing a person to murder someone. And then goes to a medium, and that demon says, this is the guy who did it, and this is where he is. And then the police go find that person. You know, there are a lot of things that are, that are fake. There's a lot of things that, where people are just being deceived. But also, those things are real. They're just demonic. What do we imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice... They offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. We don't do that as believers. You know, the Bible says, uh, the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith, devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons. We need to recognize that all false religions come from Satan and have the purpose of misleading people. And then look at verse 21. 
You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Those are incompatible. Uh, People genuinely worshiping God don't pray to Mary. That, that, that it is amazing to me how in Christianity people can take things that are so obviously sinful, so obviously rebellion against God, and label them Christian. They're not. And so we don't do that. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Verse 22, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy are we stronger than he? And that comes on the tale of all these things about the Apostle Paul saying, um, they did this, 23,000 fell. They did this, the serpents bit them and they died. They did this, God sent a destroying angel to destroy them. Man, when we see these things, we take it seriously on our own behalf. No way would we participate in that. And secondly, we are brokenhearted And we have a heart of evangelism and a love and a desire to reach people who are trapped in that. That's the passion and love that God gives us. And we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And one of the things that for us to think about um, here is that it is because of what Jesus did that you and I stand right before God. Um, Jesus, at the Last Supper, it says, now as they were eating... Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. The the bread represents the body of Christ, his earthly life that he lived, achieving God's righteousness. We as believers get the credit for the righteous life that Jesus lived. Verse 27 And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. The blood of Jesus represents his death, the fact that he died for us, that he took the punishment that we all deserve. And our standing with Christ is based on that. And part of celebrating the Lord's Supper is to worship him only, to worship him alone, to confess our sin, and to have his forgiveness. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for giving us your word. God, I thank you for how clear it is. God, I pray that we would be people who have a heart for the lost, that we see false religions rightly, that we are on a rescue mission, that we lovingly reach out to people who need to know you. God, I pray that we would not be people that pollute ourselves with idol worship. Lord, often we've grown up, we've learned things, we've learned to trust things that are not right. And God, I pray that you would help us to repent of those, to turn away from those, to be wholeheartedly devoted to you. And God, I thank you that our standing before you is not based on us. It is based on the work of Christ in your name. Amen.